What's up? Welcome to Bow Down, the teaching ministry of Pastor Chris Tress. Well, yeah, my name is Bill Rodriguez. Uh, I actually work for Urban Youth Impact, but help out at Bow Down uh, wherever wherever I'm needed. Um, And so this morning, that's uh, getting to speak to you guys, so I'm excited about that. So me uh, and tag-teaming uh, Second Timothy, so if at any time you feel like I'm not um, doing well, then I'll just tag him in, and he'll come in, y'all. Any of y'all watch wrestling, you remember tag-team, they tag the guy, come in, right? Uh, I'm just kidding. Um, he, we actually wouldn't do that, but um, I'm just glad to be here this morning. I'm glad to get here to talk to you. There's a lot of places you could be this morning, but you're here, and, and I'm thankful for that. So if you've been with us, if you... Uh, know kind of the style of bow down. We like to walk through books of the Bible. Um, we, don't, um, we don't go from topic to topic. Um, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes that can lead to um, kind of making Scripture say what you want it to to fit your topic, right? And so we walk through Scripture, and as those topics come up, we address them. Um, we just feel like uh, for us and, and our, our body, that's, that works best for us. Not saying anything against how other people do it. Everybody else has their own calling, right? But this is what we feel like we're called to do. So we finished through First uh, Timothy. Now we're on to Second Timothy. So if you've been here the last couple of weeks, uh, Chris has been preaching through that. And, um, you know, so we're going we're gonna to read it um, and then we'll get into it. So if you guys don't mind standing up, uh, we're going to read through the words. Second Timothy, we're going to start... Uh, Chapter 2, verse 1, and we're going to go through verse 13. We will be reading the ESV. Uh, so if you don't have that version, uh, we just ask that you don't read it. It'll confuse everybody, especially if you have the message. That'll just mess everybody up. Um, so let's start off Second uh, Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in sufferings as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you take this word, Father, and that you use it to penetrate our hearts, God. We we know that you've already been working in our hearts before we walked in this room. God, we pray that we would come with with the attitude expecting you to do something amazing in our lives today, not because of me, but because of God's word. God, please use me. God, I pray you would take away my own words, my own thoughts, and just allow your spirit to speak through me to encourage and to challenge all of us in this room as we live out our faith, Father. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So a little bit of background uh, from 2 Timothy. 
just because I feel like the background will help you understand it. So as we read through this passage, please remember uh, the surroundings. Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. Timothy, who he frequently calls my son, right? They have a relationship that's just beyond a friendship. I mean, he looks at Timothy like his, his son. He has poured his life into Timothy. Now, Paul has been through a lot in his lifetime, all right? And 2 Timothy is the last letter that he ever writes. And so out of all the amazing things that Paul has done in his lifetime and all the people that he's encountered, all the churches that, that he's helped start, his last letter, his last words are to Timothy, not to a church, right? Not to anything else, but to, his, to Timothy, who he considers a son, so basically, it's like his last, his last rites, right? He knows he is, he is locked up in prison right now, which he has been before, but he knows this time he's not going to get out. And he's just ba- basically awaiting um, his trial and waiting uh, his execution. He's not sitting in a you know, nice jail cell where he gets three hots in a cot, right? He's sitting in a jail cell um, that's cold, dark, and wet. You'll hear later on in the book of 2 Timothy how he asks uh, Timothy to bring him his coat, basically, because he's freezing, um, because the conditions that he's in are just so terrible. But continue to remember that as we read through and see the attitude of Paul throughout uh, the beginning of chapter 2 and how his attitude does not reflect his situation. And so when I was getting ready for this, it's kind of interesting. Uh, within the last like year and a half, I've done the same passage like three or four times. And I thought about just telling Chris, hey, we'll just throw the video the last time I spoke and everybody would be good with that. Um, I'm joking. But it seems like when God continues to put something in front of you over and over again, there's, there's always more to learn from it. Maybe you didn't learn the first time. Anybody ever experienced that where... Maybe you didn't learn it the first time. God had to put you through it again and again and again. Those of us that are stubborn, it might be more times than others um, that he's got to continue to put you through that. Um, But also understand that as you read God's word, right, his word continues to come alive, right? You can read the same passage over and over and over again, and you can continue to get new things from it. That's how amazing uh, the word of God is. But as I was preparing this time, it really made me think about Legacy, right? Um, basically, Paul is using his last efforts to write to Timothy. And so as I was thinking through this, if I knew that my time was up, if I knew that, you know, I was facing death and that that was coming at me and I only really had a, one opportunity, uh, who would I write to and what would I say, Right? What would be my last charge, right? Like Paul's giving his last charge to Timothy. Hey, Timothy, my life's almost over. These are my last words that you're going to be left with before I'm gone. Like what would I do and what would I say, right? What would I say to my wife? What would I say to my kids? And what legacy would I be leaving them as I, as I go? Has my life reflected, right, the words that I've spoken, that I'm a follower of Christ, that Christ is the most important thing in my life, that that I live my life to impact other people? Would my family see that, right? Or would those words fall on empty ears, right? Paul had to pour into Timothy for his words to mean something at the end. And so it really challenged me as a, as a husband, as a father, what is that legacy that I'm leaving, right? 
and think through that as we read through uh, what Paul writes. So um, we're going to start off verse one. So verse one, he says this. He says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in And my job as a parent can fix them. <laughs> I don't know what to do with them anymore, right? And it's like, well, what have you been doing as a parent, right? One, one question I always ask Parents or kids, when I want to know the family dynamic is how often do you guys eat meals together? How often do you eat dinner together in a week? That tells you a lot about a family. I'm not trying to call you out, but understand those times, meal times, are when your kids will naturally open up. You don't have to ask them tough questions. They're going to come out with it because we all know when you sit around a table and you eat together, conversations are sparked. Things are said. Guards are, are down and, and things open up, Right. So I know as a youth pastor, if I, if I ask them and they don't do meals together, then I know there's, there's already something wrong with the family dynamic, that they're not connecting throughout the week. And because they're not connecting, that parent doesn't, the kid doesn't feel like the parent has any right to speak into their life. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. But that doesn't start at 14, 15, 16. That starts when they're young. It starts by telling them no and giving them balance. not rely on my own strength. If I rely on my own strength this morning, then you guys will walk out of here and be like, oh, that was all right. And your life will never change. Nothing will change for you. You'll walk in the same person that you are when you walk out. That's what can be so hard about the word of God is like when you're bringing it and when I'm studying through it, I might think of something and it's like, God, I got to pray through this because that might be my own thoughts and my own interpretation and not yours. I don't want to bring my interpretation this morning. If I do that, then you guys will get nowhere, right? Because on my own, I'm nobody. When I was young, elementary, middle school, and then starting into high school, I could not stand in front of anybody and speak. I was shy. I lacked self-confidence. I'd get scared. I'd get nervous. I'd be up here shaking. I'd be stuttering. Like, I hated talking in front of people. But it was a gift that God had in me. 
right? And he started to develop that over time. Now I love it. I love to be able to come up and speak in front of people, but it's something that God has cultivated over time. It's a gift that he has given me that he continues to fan. He gave me opportunities to be able to do that. So Paul goes into verse 2, and verse 2 is, is kind of a go-to for most uh, churches, most Christians for discipleship. If you want to talk about how discipleship is supposed to work, they'll go to verse 2. Verse 2 says this. It says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so that first, the first word that, I, that kind of sticks out to me is entrust, right? That word entrust means something of value. You don't entrust something that doesn't mean a whole lot, right? You entrust something because it has some sort of value and potential. So Paul is entrusting these things to Timothy because they are important, because they are valuable. And how many times for us as believers do we not truly entrust what God has given us. Meaning, we don't hold it high with value. Right? We understand value and taking care of things. Might have a nice car, nice things in your house, nice clothes, whatever it is. What do we do? We take care of those. We clean them. We keep them nice. But how many times do the things that God has entrusted us with, do we actually value and protect? Do we keep nice? Right? Do we hold high? Because they're important. 2 Timothy 1.12 says this. It says, Which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. This is how Paul looked at it as far as what God has given him. He said, This is why I suffer. And I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed that I've suffered for this because it's so valuable to me, because it means so much to me that I'm willing to go through whatever it takes because it means that much to me. He says, I am convinced. Well, first he says, for I know whom I have believed. And for some of you today, you need to hear that. Do you truly know in whom you believe? Because it's easy to say, I believe in God. It's easy to say, I believe in the Bible. But do you trust it with your life? Like, does it really mean that much to you? Is it just kind of convenient to say, I go to church, right? It's convenient to have a Bible in my house. It's convenient to have a Bible app on my phone just in case, right? I need to look up something. But do you truly know whom you believe? And he says, I am convinced without a shadow of a doubt. In a jail cell, cold, dark, and wet, I'm still convinced, I'm not ashamed that he is able to guard it until that day, what he has entrusted to me. What God has given to me, I, I value above anything else. 2 Timothy 1.4 says this, it says, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You've got to guard that deposit that God has given to you, right? Going from death to life, right? That new life that he has given you, do you guard it 
Or do you constantly allow the enemy to continue to come in and tear it away from you and continue to pull it away from you and continue to get you off track and continue to get your focus elsewhere so that you don't truly line up and fall in where God wants you to be? When we have stuff of value, we guard it. Put an alarm on your house, put an alarm on your car, whatever it might be. But how are we guarding the things that God has given us? And then it talks about how you entrust it to faithful men. Well, how do you know somebody is faithful? Faithful is not just a quick pass off. Faith, like trust, comes with time. The only way that Timothy will know who to pass it on to, who is faithful, is through time. Timothy, understand, now that you are pastoring this church in Ephesus, right, in a city that's full of chaos and full of just ungodliness, you've got to be sure that the people that you put in leadership positions are faithful, people that have shown who they are over time. And yet so often within our churches here in our current culture, we're so quick to elevate somebody to a high position without first seeing if they're going to be faithful. At Urban Youth, we have a mentor program that we'd love for you to get involved with. Just a quick plug. If you want to know about it, you can talk to me afterwards. I'm not going to go all the way down into it. But, but to become a mentor, you've got to get involved in one of our programs. The reason you have to get involved in one of our programs is this. First, we want you to know what Urban Youth is all about. We want you to see how our staff and other volunteers interact with the kids because some people think that kids in one area are going to be the exact same kids in this area, and that's not true, okay? We want you to see how we do things, all right? We want to make sure you're going to be faithful because I don't want to put you in a mentor relationship with a kid and a month from now you find a new fad or something else to go on to and you leave our kid once again, wondering why this person left me, what did I do wrong, why am I alone again? We want you to show yourself faithful before we want to allow you into that relationship because our kids are too valuable to us. Paul is telling Timothy, make sure the people that you put around you and in leadership positions, the people that you're going to pour your life into are faithful. Because, Timothy, you were faithful to me, and that's why I poured my life into you, and that's why I'm passing on this baton to you. So it says, entrust a faithful man, right, who will be able to teach others also. Now, if you were here during our, uh, when we went through the qualifications of a pastor, elder, all of those qualifications in that list, the majority of them, were character issues. The one that was giftedness was able to teach. So understand, it is important to be able to teach, to be able to rightly divide, right, the word of God, to be able to present the word of God, right, in a way that is right and pure. Because we have seen what happens to ministries and churches and organizations that don't rightly handle the word of God. They use the word of God to manipulate. They use the word of God to get whatever they need to get, right? And we see what happens with that. And unfortunately, the world has seen that as well. And so a lot of them don't trust us. 
Because we don't know how to accurately handle the word of God if we even know the word of God. Able to teach is huge. And I don't take it lightly as somebody speaking to you because I pour over this too because I'm held at a higher right, responsibility if I don't accurately present it to you as well. Be able to give it to somebody who's going to then be able to accurately teach it to somebody else. My professors always used to tell me in college, the best way to learn something is to teach it. Because even today you hearing it, you might remember some. If you write it down, you'll remember more. But if you had to go, if we said, hey, I want you to listen to this message today, and then next week you have to teach it, right, you're going to listen with a whole different perspective. Multiplication. So I said this was a verse that talks about how we do discipleship. Well, 2 Timothy 1.5 says this. It says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Understand that not only is discipleship something that we're called to do as a body, but we're also called to do as leadership, but we're also called to do in our families. It's generational. He's talking to Timothy and he's saying, Timothy, I see that your grandmother Lois was a believer. Your grandmother Lois poured into your mother Eunice, who was a believer. And Eunice poured into you. That's three generations right there, right? Most people would, when you, when you study uh, the Second Timothy 2, 2, it's four generations, right? Take what I've taught you uh, and trust it to others who then trust in others. So you have Paul, Timothy, and trust it to others who then will be able to teach other people. That's four generations. Right here, he's showing uh, an example of three generations, grandmother, mother, and then Timothy. Right now, for me and my family, my father was a strong believer. My grandfather um, grew up in the Catholic Church. Don't believe that he was a believer. Um, he's, he's passed on. But my father, I know, I, I saw his life. I saw the fruit, right? So my father poured into me, and now I'm pouring into my sons so that the hope is that when they grow up and they get married and they have kids, then they pour in to their kids. This is who we are, right? If this isn't what you're doing right now, I want to challenge you that this is the model that, that is set up for us. So you might be saying, you know what? I didn't have a dad or a mom pouring into me. Well, it starts with you, right? The cycle can now change because that's the God that we serve, right? If we don't believe that God can change cycles, then we might as well just leave right now. He is powerful enough to change that cycle, and you have the opportunity and ability to start it fresh and new. How amazing will it be four generations from now to say, man, my great-great-great-grandfather or my great-great-grandmother, they decided that, that they were going to live their life for Christ, and man, look at the fruit generation after generation after generation. Paul is saying, Timothy, this is what I'm calling you to. And this brings back into question the legacy, right? What legacy are you trying to leave? Pastor Chris said it a couple weeks ago. Who is your Paul? Right? We all should have a Paul. Somebody that's older than us, that's pouring down into us. And we should all have a Timothy, right? As I take what's being poured into me and what God is doing in me, now I pour it into the next generation. And that's what, what Paul is calling Timothy to. In verse 3, 
It says this. It says, share in sufferings as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And so I love this comparison to a soldier. Uh, Pastor Chris has used that a lot, that same comparison to a soldier uh, as far as following Christ and being a Christian and going out, right, on duty. Hardship is necessary because it creates struggle, it creates pain. But through that struggle and pain, right, it builds character. All of us in here have been through something. I've been through a struggle. And at the time, it was tough. And maybe we even wanted God to rescue us from it. But on the other side, we can look back and see the growth. Right? So the struggle is necessary. It's also sacrificial. You've got to look and see a greater good. A soldier, that's what they must look at when they do their, go out to war and go out to battle. They can't be thinking about anything else but the greater good. And I know in our culture and society, military uh, can have like different, you know, people have different thoughts about military, but, but understand where Paul is coming from with, with the military and relating it to, to how a soldier is supposed to live. A soldier must look at the greater good no matter what the cost is. 1 Timothy 1.8 says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of of God. Don't be ashamed of me, right? I knew hardship was coming. So don't be ashamed that I'm in jail because I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed that I'm locked up and in prison for doing exactly what I know I was supposed to do, for living the life that I was exposed to live, for following Christ and doing exactly what he called me to. Don't be ashamed of that, but share in this suffering. Understand that this is a privilege to share in. But yet we look at suffering and hardship, right, with the wrong perspective. Paul is in prison. He's in jail. This jail was, some scholars believe, used to be like an old bathroom, right? So this, this is not a nice jail. This is not a nice place that he has ended up for a life filled of commitment to Christ, of planting churches and pouring into leaders. This is where it got him. Are you still willing to follow that if that's what God has for you at the end? We've got to stop looking at hardship as if, right, it's inconveniencing us and understand that God is giving us opportunities through that. So tomorrow morning when you're driving to work, and you drive over a nail and you get a flat tire, I want you to praise God. Thank you, God, that the nail hit my tire and not the person behind me. Praise you for this opportunity, right? That's how we should look at it, that it is now an opportunity, not a setback. Because you never know what God is going to do in that situation. You never know what God's plan is in that situation. Paul didn't want to be in jail, but since he's in jail, what does he do? He uses it for the glory of God. Most of the letters that he wrote, he wrote while he was in jail. Why did God have to put him in jail? Probably because Paul wouldn't slow down enough to sit and write a letter because he was always on the move, always pouring into somebody, always going to the next town that God had to put him in jail and say, hey, I need you to sit for a little bit. I need you to scribe down some of that knowledge so that it can be passed on. 1 Timothy 1.12 says this, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed for I know him know whom I have believed 
And I'm convinced that he is able to guard until the day what has been entrusted to me. Suffer as I do, don't be ashamed because he is able. That sounds like a good line. Oh yeah, God, he is able. There's plenty of songs where he is able. But do we live that out every single day? Do we truly believe that he is able? When you're in your prayer time praying over something that God hasn't answered, right, and you continue to pray and pray and pray, do you still believe that he is able? Because his word says that he is able, and his character shows that he is able, but do you still believe enough that he is able? Because Paul did. Paul believed God was able to get him out of jail if he wanted to. But if he didn't, that was okay. Verse 4, he says this, still using the analogy of a soldier, he says, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. He doesn't get entangled. A soldier gives up his rights. When you enlist, you give up your rights. You're basically saying, you know what? I give up the right to freedom as far as freedom to when I can eat, when I can sleep, where I can sleep, where I can go throughout my day, sometimes even when I can go to the bathroom, right? A soldier gives that up and says, I'm giving up my rights and my choices and I'm entrusting them into somebody else, whoever that leader is above me, that's going to tell me when to do this and give me instruction and give me guidance, That's the life of a believer, is us giving up rights and choices and control and saying, God, I trust you to show me exactly where I go and what I need to do. 2 Peter 2.20 says this, it says, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse than the first state. We've got to stop getting entangled with all the things that the enemy throws out there to trip us up. When a soldier is at war, he can't be worried about the things back home. And as bad as that sounds, he can't. He can't be sitting there on the battlefield thinking about his wife, thinking about his kids, thinking about what his friends are doing back home. He's got to be locked in. Believers, you got to be locked into what God has called you to. Because we're at war every single day. And the enemy is so good at what he does of slowly pulling us away. It's not big things that pull us away all the time. Big, obvious things. It's small things. Little compromises that he uses to just pull us away a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. Until we're so distracted we don't realize that we're so far away from the battle. So he doesn't have to worry about you as a soldier anymore. Because you're not even close to the battle. That's his goal. That's his purpose. We can't get entangled with the things of this world. We've got to stay on mission. He then compares it to an athlete. No matter how great an athlete you are, how strong, how fast, how fast you can swim, whatever the the activity is, you can't go anywhere if you don't follow the rules. If you don't follow the rules, you can't compete. You disqualify yourself. And so Paul is telling Timothy, one, understand you're in battle every single day. Stay focused. Stay on guard. Stay on watch. Be alert to what's going on. Second, you got to play by the rules. Don't do anything in your life that's going to disqualify you from what I've called you to do. you got to follow the rules. You've got to follow 
God's word. And then he compares it to a hardworking farmer. You got to be willing to put the work in. It says a, a hardworking farmer should be the first one, right, to enjoy the crops, the fruit, right, the fruit of your harvest. That's awesome, right? That when we put the work in and we follow the things that God has called us to, that we get to see firsthand the work, the harvest. But you got to be willing to put the work in. And so as I was thinking about it, God, why would Paul compare a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer who in some context can seem very different, right? What pulls them together? One, strength. Soldiers, what's, what do you do when you enlist? You go to boot camp. You do push-ups, you run, you build your body, your endurance, muscles, everything, right? Athlete, same thing. Discipline, you got to be in the weight room, you're, you're running, you're lifting, doing whatever, Farmer, strength. If you don't know a farmer, go meet one and find out that a farmer, when he takes his shirt off, may not look like a guy in the, in the gym, but I guarantee you he can outwork you. So when I was in high school, I had the opportunity to go work for a guy that was at our church. Uh, he had a farm and he needed us to uh, stack hay bales. I'm like, oh, yeah, I got this, man. I'm a football player. I've been in the weight room feeling good, feeling strong. Yeah, I can go out there and do this for eight hours a day. No big deal. Get out there. You know, a couple other guys were with me, and we got to stack all this. So, you know, boom, starting off. Boom. Man, this is nothing, man. Simple. I'm, I'm made for this. I could do this all day. 15 minutes in, I'm like, how long, how much longer are we doing this? <laughs> right? By the end of the day, it's like, lift it up. Whew. Right? And he's just mm, muscling it like no big deal. Just laughing at us, right? It's a different kind of strength. They're motivated. All right? Soldiers are motivated. They have a mission. They have a goal, right, that they're going after. Same with athletes. The Olympics are coming up. Those athletes in the Olympics, they are motivated. They don't have to have somebody in their ear every day saying, hey, you need to go work out. Hey, you need to practice. Hey, you need to go do this and go do that. They don't need that because they're motivated. Because if you're not motivated, self-motivated, you're not going to get to the Olympics. Because if you have to have somebody in your ear every day telling you to get up and go do these things, you're not going to make it. You've got to have that drive. Farmers are motivated. They understand that if they don't get the, the seeds in the ground at a certain time, then they're not going to see the harvest, which is going to impact their family. They are motivated to do what they do. And as I was looking at all three of those things, I also noticed, like we talked about in verse 2, that those things are generational. Many times when you have somebody that's in your family that's been in service, right, that, that, that love is passed down and you'll see multiple people continue to go into service because of, of that. Same with athletes, right? Sometimes to the bad, parents try to, to live out their athletic careers that they never made it to through their kids, right? That's the ones going nuts on the sidelines, yelling and screaming. But a lot of times if your parents, you know, if you had parents that were athletes, it's passed down. Same with farming, right? If your parents were a farmer, they want to pass that down to you. It's generational. And understand, discipleship is generational. It's generational. And Paul is passing it on to Timothy, who's going to be that next generation. Verse 7, he says, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So, Timothy, just in case you don't understand all of this, right? that I'm throwing at you. I know this is a lot. 
Trust in the understanding that God will give you. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. For many of us that grew up in church, that was a common verse thrown out at Sunday school, at VBS, whatever. But a verse that we commonly just kind of push to the back because we always want to understand it ourselves. God, why don't I understand why you're doing this to me? Why don't I understand why you're putting me in this situation? Why don't I understand why you won't give me this, this, and this? Paul is in prison, and he's telling Timothy, don't lean on your own understanding. Because if I lean on my own understanding right now, I'd be complaining to God about how I'm in jail again, how I'm about to die, how all I've tried to do since I got saved was to lead people to Christ and to continue the gospel, and I'm sitting here in prison. That's what happens when you lean on your own understanding. We are not going to understand everything that God is doing. I'm sorry if you think that enough studying or, or enough whatever is going to get you there. You're never going to understand everything that God has for you. You just got to lean on his understanding. You just got to trust him. You got to trust that he knows what he's doing, that he's in control. He knows how to work the knobs and the buttons and the gears to make everything work. All right? He's not hiding behind the curtain. He's right there. He's in control. And then in verse 8, he says this. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Kind of an interesting thing to throw out there, but so true if we look at ministry. How many ministries operate without Jesus? A lot. If you've been in church any amount of time, you see that. Churches think that success is adding more programs and events and calendar stuff. And they just submerge their calendar with all this stuff to make it look like they're making an impact when so many times those events, those programs have nothing to do with Jesus. The spiritual is completely sucked out of them and we're all doing it for our own personal gain. I've seen it in many churches that I've been in. And so he's reminding them, Timothy, once again, let me remind you. This ministry will go nowhere without Jesus Christ. That is the foundation of everything. As believers, that's the foundation for us. If everything that you do doesn't operate out of the, the center being Jesus Christ, then you're out of line. And you've got to come back into alignment. Jesus Christ must be the center of everything. The center of your own life. If you're married, the center of your marriage. Right? If you've got kids, the center of your family. It's got to be. Because when it gets off track, everything gets off track. Paul is telling Timothy, remember, you got to keep Jesus first. You got to keep Jesus first. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, which shows power, it shows authority, it shows fulfillment of the scripture, right? Then he says, a descendant of David, which once again reminds us that it's generational, right? That Jesus came out of the line of David. It's generational. And then he talks about the gospel, which what changes life and what continues to be passed on. This is the calling that he's put on our lives as believers. Then verse 9, he says, he's talking about the gospel. He says, for which I am suffering. We understand he's suffering right now where he is. Bound with chains as a criminal. 
He's in chains, in jail, that's wet and cold and dark and nasty. As a criminal, because why? Because of the gospel. And yet we whine and complain sometimes when we're in convenience in our own lives, when we have never truly experienced this kind of suffering for Christ. And I don't want to say that as a, what you've been through doesn't matter, because it does. It's all part of our story. But we've got to understand that sometimes the things that we make a big deal are not really that big of a deal. He says, I'm bound with chains as a criminal. Can't go anywhere, right? I'm locked in. But the word of God is not bound. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. But the word of God is not bound. The word of God is not confined. It can't be chained up like a criminal. It can't be confined to a jail cell. It can't be put in a box. Because even when Paul was in jail, what did he do? He's writing letters. He's encouraging people. He's continuing the ministry, continuing the gospel. When he gets out, right back on track. And yet when we face hardships or hang-ups, we complain and we get off track and we miss opportunities that God has for us to continue the ministry. God's word cannot be bound. Nothing in heaven or on earth can hold it down. It will continue to accomplish and do exactly what it's meant to do. That's the hope that we can live in as believers. The word of God cannot be bound. So although I'm sitting in a jail cell, the fruit of my labor and what I've done continues to grow. And I'm okay with that. Then in verse 10 he says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He says, I endure everything. No matter the circumstances, I do it all for the gospel, for others, for life change. I do it all for everybody else. I don't care that I'm in jail. I don't care that I've been shipwrecked. I don't care the things that, that I've had to walk through in my life. As long as the gospel is continuing to go out, I'm okay with that. I mean, look at the things that he's been through. Shipwrecked. I would never want to be shipwrecked, ever. I don't like water. If I can't see the bottom, I don't want to be in it. That's just the way it is. I know that sounds funny to some people, but especially in Florida, if I can't see the bottom, I ain't going in there because there's alligators and all kinds of stuff. And you can say what you want about that, but I'm not risking my life for that. I risk my life for Jesus, but I'm not risking my life to get eaten by alligator. All right? And if it's at night, you can forget about that. Nope, not, no amount of money in the world can, can get me to jump in there. What are we willing to endure for the gospel? What are you willing to go through that somebody else's life can be changed? What are you willing to suffer so that the gospel can continue to go forth? Because Paul was willing to give it all. And sometimes I'm frustrated because my Wi-Fi doesn't work. <laughs> right? I'm frustrated because my AC doesn't get cold enough, quick enough in my car down here in South Florida. What am I willing to endure so that other people's lives are changed? Because Paul said to live as Christ and to die as gain. He said I count everything else rubbish, right? Dung heap. 
a pile of poop. And he came from a great line, from great family, from great wealth, from great knowledge. He is, you know, all these things that, that the world looks at him and says would put him on a, on a pedestal. And he says, you know what? None of that matters. I'd rather be in jail, chained to the wall, right, freezing my butt off, but being able to write this letter to Timothy because the gospel will continue no matter what happens in my life. And so then we get to verse 11, which is always, it's always kind of interesting how Paul throws things in here. He says, the saying is, this saying is trustworthy, okay? Like, I don't know that all the other stuff wasn't trustworthy. I'm not going to go that far and put words in Paul's mouth. But this is trustworthy. And so when he says something like this, even more for us to sit up and pay attention. That what I'm about to drop on you, all right, is going to be pretty serious. He says, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we have died with him, we will live with him. Luke 9.24 says this, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Whoever is willing to throw their life on the line, whoever is willing to put their life on the line, like a good soldier that jumps on a grenade to save his platoon, right? Those are the people that are going to find life. Those are the people, right, that are going to be with me. If you find your life here, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life here, you're going to find it. You're going to save it. If we have died with him, then we have that promise that one day we're going to live with him. And I don't know about you, but I am tired of living in the chaos of this world. And I truly look forward to the day that I cross over from this world and I get to meet my Savior face to face. And I get to live in the most beautiful place that I will ever lay my eyes on with my, my Savior who I've been working and, and laboring for my whole life. You know, I talked to my youngest son. He's so funny the way that he thinks, but he always is asking me, hey, Dad, what do, you, do you think that they're going to have a chocolate milk uh, water fountain in heaven? Because I'd really like that. Right? I don't know. I can't tell you, son. Scripture doesn't say that they don't, so I'm not going to say no. Right? But do we really understand what we're working towards? Do we really truly understand what lies for us at the end? Because sometimes we need that end motivation to really help us along this way, right? An athlete, their end game is the Olympics and even probably that, a a gold medal, right? They know what they're shooting for. Do we understand what waits for us when we live out our life for Christ? Do we understand the riches and glory that we're going to see when we get to heaven, that Jesus is building our mansion right now? I have no idea what that means because in worldly context, all I know is the mansions that I see on Palm Beach Island. I don't know that that's what it's going to look like. I have no idea. It could be like the coolest, sickest looking treehouse. I have no idea. But all I know is this. I can't wait to get there because I'm tired of what goes on here. But just like Paul said, right, to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I'm here and you want me here, Christ, then you have a job for me and there's fruitful labor here. And if you take me away, right, then I get to spend an eternity with you. We've got to understand that. Then in verse 12, he says this. If we endure, 
we will also reign with him. If we endure the things that we have to go through here like Paul did, then we get to reign with him, with dad, right? Creator, author and finisher of our faith, prince of peace. All the, all the names that you want to give him, that's who we get to reign with, the man, right? Above anything else in this world, that's who we get to reign with. A good soldier, an athlete, a farmer, all understand endurance. Hebrews 12.1 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that has been set for us. Romans 5, 3 and 4 says this, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Hebrews 10.36 says, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Romans 5.17 says this, it says, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And Romans 8.17 says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Those are the promises that God gives us. That's what I love about God's word is those things are laid out for us. He tells us exactly what's going to happen. But you've got to know that comes with the good and that comes with the bad because it also says if we deny him, then he will deny us before his father. Matthew 10, 33, but whoever denies me before man, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. And Luke 12, 9 says, but the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Understand that you've got to understand Understand that you got to understand. That doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Understand that there's a calling for us. And when we walk in it, right, we live with him and we get to reign with him. But when we deny him, he denies us. And sometimes people don't like to get to that, that truth. That, that hurts a little bit too much. But what a great God we serve that he lays it all out for us so we know. And then the last verse says this. It says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Let me read it again. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. When I am faithless, when my circumstances and situations surround me to a point where I lose faith and I don't think that God can do it and I turn this big, huge creator God into this very small in a box God, he is still faithful. When I give up hope, when I don't see the end, when I don't think things are going to turn around, he is still faithful. He remains faithful in my faithlessness because we are all faithless at some time. But he remains faithful because that's who he is. And that's who he shows himself to be over time. He is faithful. From the beginning of this world to the end, he is faithful. 
And so I feel like at the end, Paul, in essence, is saying this, Timothy, my dear son, I leave you with this one thing. Despite all I have been through and all that I have suffered, I want you to know I would do it all over again for the sake of the gospel, for the opportunity to pour out my life, to be an example so that you will see just how important it is and you will go and do the same. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. The words of Paul, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Walk with me as I walk with Christ. This is the example that we need to set and this is the legacy that you need to leave. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. This verse sums up the gospel so well. When we were faithless, he was faithful. He never denies himself. No matter what the situation or circumstances is, he never denies himself. He is always true to who he is. Time in and time out. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow, he will be the same. Faithful. He will be faithful to you no matter what happens. He will be faithful to you no matter what comes your way. He will stay faithful. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's how faithful he is to us. While we were turning our back on him, while we were doing our own thing, while we were pushing him to the side, he sent his son Jesus to die for us, to die for me. When I could care less about pleasing God, when I chose to do things that I knew would hurt his feelings, that I knew weren't right, what did he do? He sent his son Jesus to die for me. When I am faithless, he is faithful. He is able. His word cannot be bound. Understand who we serve today. A God that loves us so much, but because of our sin, we were separated from him. The only way to bridge that gap, to bring that relationship back together, was to send his son Jesus to come down to earth to live in the flesh. See, Jesus knew the end goal. That's why he endured all the things that he did on earth. At any time, he could have called legions of angels to come save him. He could have spoken and killed all the leaders and the authorities that were trying to, to kill him. He could have pulled himself off the cross, but he knew that that wouldn't save us. So because that wouldn't save us, he had to endure the cross. He had to endure the shame. He had to endure the punishment because the end game was a restored relationship with God the Father. And so he gave his life and he shed his blood for us. But at the same time, he overcame sin and death in the grave. And three days later, he came up out of that grave. Something that no other religion can claim. Jesus came up out of the grave and he is alive. And he sent his spirit down to work in us and through us, to show us the way to teach us how to live. That's the gospel. And I don't know where you are in your gospel story today. You might be here today and you know what? You've never given your life to Christ. You've heard Jesus. You know Jesus. You know some stories from the Bible, but you've never decided, you know what? I'm tired of trying to control it all. I realize that when I do it on my own, 
Things just don't work out the way they're supposed to. I realize that, that I have sin in my life, and because of that, it creates a separation with God. You know what? Today you can get that taken care of. And so as the worship team comes up, we'll have prayer partners down here. If that's you today, then God is calling you to, to, to get up when, when worship starts and come talk to one of our prayer partners. Maybe you've given your life to Christ. You've crossed over from death to life, but you're just not on the, on the right path. You've kind of allowed those things to entangle you and kind of pull you away from, from the path that God has for you. There's no better time than today to get that right. We'd love for you to come talk to one of our prayer par- partners and help them. They can help you walk you through that. And you might be here today and you know what? You've given your life to Christ and right now you're hitting that sweet spot and you're doing exactly what God has called you to do and you're following God and you're feeling his presence, right? And that gift that's inside you continues to be fanned. We want to pray for you that it will continue, that God will continue to use you to change lives. I don't know where it hits you today, but all I can say is this. You have to be obedient to what God's calling you to do today. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time this morning, and thank you for your word. Thank you for the example of Paul. God, and the attitude that he can have that no matter what comes his way, God, he's going to use it to preach the gospel. If you put him in jail, then he'll talk to prisoners, he'll talk to soldiers, he'll write letters, whatever he has to do, God. May we have that continue, continue to have that same attitude. That no matter what comes our way, God, that we would find a way to use it for your glory. If our car breaks down when we go to the shop, may we use that as an opportunity to speak about your goodness. God, if our AC goes out tonight, may we use that as an opportunity to talk to the repairman about the love of Christ. Whatever comes our way, Father, may we use it for your glory and for your honor. God, continue to use us to pour into the next generation, the next group of leaders, so that they can continue on what was started so long ago. Thank you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for visiting us today. Make sure to check us out online at www.bowdownchurch.com.